Hello, in this week's show, the latest on the emergency relief effort in the Philippines after the destructive passage of Super Typhoon Rai. Deep concern about the blockade of medicines to Ethiopia's Tigray, a landmark judgment against a Syrian interrogator who's been found guilty of crimes against humanity, and Omicron on the African continent, where infections look to be plateauing, but not everywhere. All this and more in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with Solange Bejotegui-Cortez and me, Daniel Johnson. Thanks for listening. First, the news. The guilty verdict against a Syrian intelligence official adjudged to have been behind torture and killings of detainees during the country's ongoing civil war has been widely welcomed by the UN's human rights system. High Commissioner Michel Bachelet hailed the historic conviction of the 58-year-old defendant, identified only as Anwar R, by a German court in Koblenz on Thursday. He was convicted of crimes against humanity for killings, serious deprivation of liberty, rape, sexual assault and hostage-taking. No matter where you are or how senior you may be, if you perpetrate torture or other serious human rights violations, you will be held accountable sooner or later, at home or abroad, the UN rights chief said, describing the development as a landmark leap forward in the pursuit of truth, justice and reparations for violations perpetrated in Syria over more than a decade. After a six-week surge, Africa's fourth pandemic wave that's been mainly driven by the Omicron variant is flattening, the World Health Organization, WHO, said on Thursday. The WHO said that this marked the shortest surge since the pandemic began on the continent, where total cases have exceeded 10.2 million. Recorded cases of infection show that the weekly number plateaued in the seven days leading up to the 9th of January from the previous week. Southern Africa saw a huge increase in infections during the Omicron wave, but recorded a 14% decline in confirmed cases over the past week. And South Africa, where Omicron was first reported, saw a 9% fall in weekly infections. East and Central African regions also experienced falling numbers of cases, but North and West Africa are seeing a rise, with North Africa reporting a 121% increase this past week compared with the previous seven days. Head of the UN Health Agency Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus has spoken out over continuing blockades on life-saving humanitarian access to Ethiopia's Tigray region. Tedros said that despite the best efforts of the World Health Organization, WHO, it has been prevented from sending medicine for basic life-saving procedures. We're deeply concerned from WHO's side. We have tried all our best, but we're blocked from sending medicines to Tigray, Ethiopia. And that's so dreadful and unimaginable during this time, 21st century, when a government is denying its own people for more than a year food and medicine and the rest to survive. It is now more than 14 months since conflict erupted between Ethiopian federal forces and those loyal to the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Tigray has been under siege for more than a year, Tedros told journalists from Geneva, before noting that WHO teams have been allowed to send medicines to Afa and Amhara regions. The headlines there, and now to this week's interview, which takes us to the vast Philippines archipelago, where once popular tourist spots have been smashed to bits by Super Typhoon Rai, or Odette, as it's known locally. It's now four weeks since the disaster which has left thousands homeless and farming and fishing communities reliant on handouts. 
children are begging on roadsides and survival sex is now happening too. All this in a place where people were already on their knees from Covid. Among those helping the government relief effort, the World Food Programme is there, providing nutritious supplies, solidarity and amazing technical solutions to help coordinate the disaster response in the form of mobile telecoms networks. As we'll hear from country director Brenda Barton now. The situation on the ground a month after Typhoon Odette went across an area the size of Austria is still extremely worrying for thousands and thousands of people. We have more than 7 million people who've been affected by this typhoon and many of those people are living in the open. They do not have houses yet or they're living in evacuation centers which are really worrying because they're living in close confines and we have COVID that's spiraling around. The situation for the livelihoods is also very worrying because people do not have money and they're relying on relief aid. And we've seen outbreaks of diarrhea and indeed we've seen some deaths as well. So it is really a a very worrying situation with the humanitarian community rushing aid as fast as it can, working together with the government to help communities. So those communities most affected are farming and fishing villages. How are they surviving? What is the damage that you've seen yourself? So what I saw was really not a boat standing. I mean, the boats had been destroyed by the rising sea tides and by what was really a combination, I would say, of a typhoon, but also a tornado effect. I mean, things were just ripped up and thrown and and the, and the houses were raised to the ground. There was barely a building that had been untouched. And so there was really nothing left for people. I saw mountainsides that used to be full of beautiful coconut trees. They were stripped bare. They were brown. The coconuts have been destroyed. In fact, right now what people are doing is they're taking chainsaws and they're trying to, you know, make a bit of a living out of the wood that's there, but that won't last for long. So, you know, the loss of livelihood, farmland, it's extremely worrying at a time when the country was already honestly on its knees due to COVID and economic recession. In your last briefing to journalists, you said that there were still some communities that were cut off. Have you reached them yet? So there's more and more access to communities that is opening up, but my colleagues are saying that there's still areas in the rural parts of some of these smaller islands. You know, you can imagine that it is a huge amount of territory to try to reach and people that are living outside of the main cities, many of them have not been reached with aid. We're getting reports from uh, communities where children are standing along the roadside with signs saying, please help us, begging for food. There's concern by agencies such as the United Nations Population Fund about gender-based violence and prostitution on the rise as a coping mechanism. Now the UN itself is calling for $107 million. The World Food Programme wants $25 million. This is for food logistics and telecoms. Maybe you could tell us how that appeal is progressing. So from the WFP side, we've received, I would say, about 25% of what our $25 million request was. But You know, that's a month into this crisis. And really what we're finding is that the damage on the ground is as great as high-end in terms of the numbers of houses that have been damaged. It's actually more houses were damaged than Typhoon high-end, which was in 2013 and which killed, you know, more than 6,000 people. And the number of cities that were also touched is almost uh, matching that of high-end. Yet in Haiyan, there was this huge public outcry and, you know, the aid poured in in volumes. Here, in this case, there were very little deaths, 
you know, somewhere in the realm of 500. Still one is, of course, <laughs> too many. But it was it was low, relatively speaking, for that kind of damage. And that seems to have set off this feeling that it's not as grave as, as other typhoons of you know, their magnitude. Yes, and thank goodness the World Food Programme is there along with your partners on the ground. But people might say, listen, it's 2022. Why are these disasters still happening? Why are communities so vulnerable? Maybe you could give us some development solutions that you're providing as humanitarians to people in need at the moment. Well, one of the things that WFP has been doing for the last year and certainly over years is to work on emergency preparedness together with the government. And there has been a lot that's been done. I mean, proof you know, being that there were low numbers of deaths considering this kind of devastation. I mean, I came here and people said never again, never again would they face that kind of human loss because of a, a typhoon. But of course, there's nothing you can do if the typhoon is as powerful as what it is and it destroys houses and you know telecommunications. So I think the emergency preparedness evacuation measures were really well done. The government has been quickly sending out family food packs. Um, WP has sent over 175,000 family food packs on trucks since the operation started. And then I think a really interesting area is on the telecommunications. So indeed, you know, right after the crisis, the telecommunications went down. That happens everywhere. Haiti earthquake, no matter where you are, that's the first thing that comes down. The government um, and the Department of Information and Telecommunications in particular asked the World Food Program three years ago to help it design and build mobile telecommunications units. And we did this together. And actually, the government paid for these units in large part, which were built by WFP in Dubai, where we have our specialized hub for telecommunications. In fact, I, I have to add in a part. During high-end, WFP sent out 53 international telecommunications experts to respond. This time, we're sending out four or five. So that just goes to show how much better prepared the, the country is. What's a really interesting story is that these mobile units were pre-positioned just earlier this year in six typhoon-prone parts of the country. And the idea was that as we saw a typhoon coming in, we would decide whether we would deploy these units with the government to the area that we thought would be struck. And indeed, the first deployment that we have had on these units was during this typhoon. Two of the units arrived the day before the typhoon struck, and that meant that the next day, the, the, the telecommunications from those units was enabling the government responders and the international community, really, because it, it, you know, it, it was able to tell what was going on on the ground to be up and running in a very, of course, you know, limited sense. But it, it got those emergency responders to be able to coordinate and communicate vital information. Okay, well, that's fascinating about the technological solutions, and presumably this is how humanitarian work is evolving. What has this meant operationally for you? You have to seek new partners? I mean, this kind of humanitarian response in a country like the Philippines is largely led by the government, but there's so much support that can come in and is coming in from private sector. So one of the private sector partners that we've received support from just literally yesterday sent in two airloads of mobile storage units for free from Malaysia, the UN response depot there. And this was the UPS Foundation. And here on the ground, there's been a big groundswell of help from private sector and a private sector umbrella that helps to organize it. So in a country where there is means like this, it's very important that the private sector step up, working with the local NGOs on the ground and with the government and other actors.
My thanks then to WFP's Brenda Barton with harrowing news on the plight of communities smashed by Super Typhoon Rai, but also some brilliant technological solutions to help emergency responders. For more details about this telecoms initiative, you can listen back to our interview with WFP's Patrick McKay, and that was from last November. If you remember, he was testing them, so it's wonderful to hear that the system is up and running for real. Now, let me turn to our regular guest, Solange Bejartege Cortez, for some literary inspiration about what we've just heard. Hi, Solange. Hola, Daniel. ¿Cómo estás? As we heard from Brenda Barton from the UN World Food Programme, Super Typhoon Rai, locally known as Odette, has killed around 500 people and devastated so many lives. More than 7 million people have been affected in total. A very worrying situation. Odette is a monster, literally. It hit harder in remote communities where people knew that something big was coming. But as Brenda said, you can't prepare for the unknown. And Daniel, how do you prepare to lose everything anyway? How do you find the strength to rebuild after the storm? We may find a clue in a short novel written by Joseph Conrad called Typhoon. The story is about a ship facing extreme weather. Captain McWeir, the main character, lacks imagination. He is incapable of improvising and he likes to follow instructions. But the storm destroys them. The point is that the storm also creates the conditions that bring out other qualities in the ship's captain. As he says at the end, you don't find everything in books. Natural disasters will continue to hit the Philippines, and we know that with the climate crisis, they are becoming more unpredictable and extreme. We have to rebuild houses, but also our relationship with nature. We have to be creative and, above all, reduce inequality by being more inclusive, which is a key UN value. Let me finish by saying that it is unbearable to hear once again that women and girls have become even more vulnerable to sexual exploitation, human trafficking and gender-based violence after this natural disaster. The super typhoon created the conditions for this violence to happen, but only because women were already vulnerable. And the fact that women are so vulnerable isn't fiction. We have to rebuild, yes, but let's rebuild safe houses and strong women. Here, here, Solange. Thank you very much for that and the reference to Conrad's The Typhoon and uh, Captain McQueer, who says you don't find everything in books. Well, my children would love that, but I'm not going to tell them about him at all. <laughs> <laughs> That is it from this week's show, listeners. Thank you so much, Solange, for being with us again. Dear listeners, we'll be back next week with more news and interviews from UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. If you can't wait until then, UN News will be producing daily content on the UN News website. Please follow us and share it with your friends if you like it. Bye-bye for now. Ciao, Daniel. Hasta pronto.